All right, well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews called Jesus Is, and the topic we're going to be covering tonight is that Jesus is security. We are in Hebrews chapter 6, going through verses 4 through 12. Now, for those of you who know your way around the scriptures a little bit, you know this is a very controversial passage. This is, um, this is the big one. This is talking about whether or not we can lose our salvation. About a month ago, Jason and I were down in Hutchinson uh, for the leadership conference that we advertised here at Crosspoint, and we had uh, we'd been hanging out in the foyer for a while. Uh, everyone had a break, 15-minute break from the conference, and so I decided to go use the restroom, and when I did, there was just one other person in there, and it's a large restroom, and there's just one other guy uh, using the restroom, and I couldn't help but to notice, and um, as time passed, I, he was talking on the phone, and, and I noticed he was holding the phone while he was going to the bathroom. And, uh, and I thought to myself, man, that, that's gross. Like, how are you going to wash your hands and uh, among other logistical issues? And I, I thought, uh, whatever, you know, doesn't affect me, really. And so, um, but I couldn't help but to notice then when I went to wash my hands, and he went to wash his hands, I was thinking, like, how is he going to do this? He's still talking on the phone. And so he, he reaches down, and he gets a little bit of water on his, his hand. And I'm thinking, okay, he's just going to do the real the power scrub, you know, the one-hand power scrub. And, uh, and he just takes the water, and he combs his hair with it. He didn't use soap or anything. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, that's ridiculous. Uh, that's gross. Uh, but then he, he continued to talk on the phone, and he left the bathroom. And I thought, well, I don't know that guy. I never see him again. Just a little bit weird situation, but I didn't, I didn't think much of it. So then we go back out to the foyer, and I see Jason there. Now, everyone's going back into the conference. The break is over, and so we got to get back in there pretty quick. Now, someone at the last second before we walk in the doors, someone comes up behind me and sees us, and so turns around and recognizes Jason and says, oh, man, you, you, uh, you lead worship. Like, I heard you the other day. You were really, really good. And then he went and he shook his hand. And it didn't hit me in that moment until he then looked at me and said, oh, you preached not too long ago. That was a great sermon. You guys are really gifted. And then he proceeds to shake my hand. And I thought, oh my gosh. See, I wanted to engage him because, I mean, he's saying nice things and you'd be rude not to shake his hand. But I realized in that moment, this is the guy, the, the, the one-handed, not going to wash my hand, get pee on my head guy. And, he just, and Jason doesn't have a clue about this guy, but I know about this guy. But now it's too late because now we've got to get back into this conference. And so we go in and we sit uh, there through the rest of the conference. Now, a couple days later, I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, I should tell Jason about that. I should tell Jason what happened. Now, I, I was going to use the sermon in a sermon story or use the sermon story in a sermon that week. And so he was in my office and I started chuckling. We were talking about something else. I started chuckling. He said, what are you laughing about? I said, I, I don't want to tell you. And he said, what are you laughing about? You got to talk to me. And so then I told him the whole story. And it was just as awkward then as it is now telling it uh, as he sits in the back. I think, uh, I think a lot of times we actually do something similar with Scripture uh, we see passages that don't jive with what we believe, but they don't really affect us. And so we just kind of push them to the side until then we come face to face with them. And now something's at stake. And as we grow and as we mature in the word, Hebrews chapter six hits us right in the face. 
and we have to address it. And what's tempting for us to do is just to sidestep it. Oh, you know, it happened last week. I'm not going to tell Jason about this, right? I mean, why? What's the point now? And it's so easy for us to take our beliefs and to just avoid the things that might challenge it, even if those things are within Scripture itself. And so today, this is, this is a hard passage. This is a, a, a serious passage. This whole book is serious. And it's full of good stuff, but tonight is just serious. So when we walk through this, when we walk through this, you're going to have to ask yourself questions tonight. That, um, Like, do I really believe, do I really trust that Jesus is enough security? That what he did on the cross, that his resurrection that his words, that his life, that, that he is enough security for me, not only eternally, but if you can trust him in the big stuff, it's that much easier to trust him in the daily stuff. Can I, can I really trust Jesus? Now, before we jump in to this text, you've got to know, as we talk about this, there's four primary views. I'm sure some could give you more, some could sum it up in less, but four primary views that throughout the centuries scholars have kind of brought together as to what this passage means. So before I even read it, I'm going to give you those four views. Now, the first one is just straight up hard, and that is that a true believer can lose their salvation. That you and I, we can be saved, and we can follow Jesus, and then at some point we can turn from him, and we can lose all the blessings and inheritance that go with salvation. The next one is context. Now this one, we honestly, we probably, because of a lack of knowledge, we can't really affirm or, or deny Okay? We want to come to the table tonight because I know, I know some of you, you come in here and you were mostly just curious about what I was going to say on the topic in case I was a heretic, but you knew in your mind what you already believed. So there wasn't much of an open mind. But the second one, the context, is this idea that maybe the author, he, he was addressing some kind of Judeo-Christian, many Jews who then believed Jesus was the Savior, but they added some weird stuff onto salvation, works-based righteousness kind of stuff. We see in Galatians, Paul addresses these guys. They went around and they corrupted the gospel. So maybe the author is addressing something amongst the Hebrew people in the local church about a a heresy, a false doctrine of how to get saved. Again, you're probably not going to walk away tonight saying, well, that's it. There's just a lack of info on that. We, We can't confirm or deny. The third one is the hypothetical that maybe the author, when he talks tonight about falling away, maybe he's saying if, if it were possible. So like, even, I mean, just hypothetically, if it were possible for someone to have all of these blessings in Christ and then fall away, well then, yeah, they could not repent. And then the fourth one is probably the one that most of us would adhere to, I'm guessing. And it's the poser. It's, it's that... The author is not referring to genuine believers, that they were never believers to begin with. How many of you have an open mind that maybe the answer is something you didn't think coming into this? A couple of you? All right. Some of you are getting nervous because you're like, now I'm not sure where he's going with it. But be open to the Word of God. Let it teach you what it really means. And we'll be in good hands. Now you all are really scared, so let's jump in. If you've got a Bible, Hebrews 6. 
starting in verse 4. All right, let's walk through this together. So the author says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. All right, let's stop there. These are two scary verses. This is, part, this is the one that puts the most doubt in you, the most fear. These are the scariest ones. Right after this, in verse 6, it says to fall away. That if, you've, when, if those people, if these people here fall away, that there's no way for them to come back to repentance. Okay, so let's walk through this. Here's the big question we have to ask ourselves. Is the author talking, when he describes these things, is he talking about true believers or not? Okay, so... It's really important when you see this list of five things here that we understand. Last week when we covered verses 1 through 3, the author gave us uh, six different things that the elementary doctrine of Christ would be. So six basic things as to repentance and, and having faith and baptism and, and even things to come. He, he gave us those things. So these things actually correspond with them. So if we just read all of Hebrews 6 together, you would think, hey, he just described what the elementary teachings of Christ are, what newbie believers have, and now he's going into this. Your first thought is he's talking about real Christians. He's talking about real Christians. Now, now, some of you are thinking, I want to know what the Greek says. I want to know what the original language says. Maybe we can work it out that way to, to say this is not talking about new believers. So let's jump into that side of it, okay? So right off the bat, it says impossible. You want to know what that means in the Greek? It means impossible, okay? And, and so there's no real hope in that. It just means it's impossible. In the case of those who have, so in the case of those, meaning this has probably happened, Whatever this is, this has probably happened or is happening. Have once been enlightened. The word enlightened, what does that mean? In the Greek, it means to be illuminated. To be, it literally means to be the light of God or to be in the light of God. That sounds pretty inclusive, doesn't it? That's kind of scary. So if someone's going to be in the light of God or to be the light of God, kind of sounds like that would be a believer, right? Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, heavenly gift being really only two options, Jesus or salvation, and the two go hand in hand. So have you tasted it? Now, now the word tasted, it doesn't help either because it means to partake in or to personally experience. That's kind of inclusive too, isn't it? Kind of sounds like we might be talking about real believers. And then it gets really scary. And he says, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now how, <laughs> I mean, just taking that for what it is, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have partaken in the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit for, generally speaking? Believers. So that's kind of scary too. And then again, it says to have tasted. Now, people have tried over the centuries to dumb down that word tasted, but it just is. It's to experience it. The goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, goodness of the word of God, that's not that crazy because we can all hear the word of God and still not be saved, right? But then it says the powers of the age to come. We're talking about miracles. Uh, He's referring to miracles and signs and wonders. So here's what you need to know. 
If you were talking to someone about this topic, and they brought up these two verses alone. Now, we don't just read Scripture in context like of, of nothing else. It's in context. So you don't just take two verses out. Thank God tonight's not over yet. But if you just take these two verses and you say, hey, I can tell you right up, I can guarantee you in the Greek, the, the, the original language, that this is talking about posers, not, any, not, not true believers. And they said, no, I think it's talking about true believers. You don't really have a, a lot of evidence. Like this, this honestly could go either way. So then you have to ask yourself, well, is it possible at all that if these things that he describes... Can you possibly experience them and not be a Christian? So this would be the Matthew 7 crew. This is the Lord, Lord, and then he says, away from me. I never knew you crew. Okay, those people, remember, they were casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They were doing all kinds of things. They were experiencing Jesus, but yet they were still not saved. So let me ask you this. Can the Holy Spirit, because it says they shared in the Holy Spirit, can the Holy Spirit convict you and you still not be saved? Well, yeah. I mean, the Holy Spirit kind of works in the lives of a bunch of people, many of whom are not saved. Huge difference between getting uh, an external conviction of the Spirit and then have the indwelling Spirit actually indwelling. Can you see miracles, signs, and wonders and still not be saved? Yeah? Can you, can, you, can you taste the goodness of the Word of God? Can you be listening to a sermon, the Word is preached, and you're just like, man, I get it. This is amazing. This is one, like, you know those moments. You're just like, the light pops on. Can you have that and still not be saved? Yeah. Can you be enlightened, illuminated, and still not be saved? Yeah, we know what that's like. Can you taste the heavenly gift? It's a bunch of people in Christian community who are experiencing God saving people, even working in their lives, but still are far from him. We see all through scripture these kind of warnings. You know that going to church your whole life obviously does not make you a Christian. So this is the scary stuff. I love my family. Six or seven years ago, someone close to me uh, was going through a, a big breakup with his, his girlfriend. I believe they might have been engaged at that time, but it was a big deal for him. And we don't talk about spiritual stuff m- normally. Uh, but he knew that I had had some kind of spiritual awakening. We lived far away from each other. Uh, he just had heard rumors. And so he called me one night, and he was broken. And he said, man, tell me, tell me about this God thing. So I I gave him the gospel as clearly as can be. He was obviously broken. And so, man, I prayed a prayer with him. He prayed along with me. I gave him some tips on where to go from here, how to study the scriptures. He even told me after that <laughs> that he went to a worship service in a Hispanic church. He said, I couldn't understand much of what was going on, but they had like these, these spontaneous baptism stuff. And like I went up there and I got baptized and it was just crazy. Like, he's like, I felt so good. It was just a, a spiritual experience. 
So now I'm looking for other fruit, right? Okay, is this, is this relationship something you're pouring into? Are you, are you obedient in things of Jesus? Well, something happened. See, he's a, he's a blue-collar guy. He makes a decent amount of money as a GM, and he, uh, he got his girl back. Before you know it, I'm not hearing much about any of this stuff anymore. And that was six years ago. And I haven't heard much since. See, as much as I love that family member, he was the epitome uh, of, of Mark 4, of Luke 4, of Matthew, where we're talking about the sower and the seed, and the seed goes on, and thorns come, and it chokes it out. The things of the world choke it out. Well, that person was not saved in the parable of the sower. And the rocky path, and the birds came and ate it up. That person was not saved. And the rocky soil, it went down, but it grew just a little bit, but then, then scorched when the sun came out. Not saved. Only one of the four is saved, and that's the healthy soil. That's the good soil, and then it produced fruit. And so as much as I love my family member, the truth is, they didn't want Jesus. They wanted out of their broken heart. And that's hard sometimes, because as believers, we know that brokenness God often uses to bring us down to our knees, to get to a place of seeing, I got no other options. I want God and God alone. But what's tricky is so many of us, we come through the brokenness, but what we really wanted was not Jesus. We just wanted out of the brokenness. And so what looked like maybe a genuine conversion was nothing more than, well, this will do until life turns around. And then it's nothing. You see, there's a couple of biblical examples of people who were experiencing much of this, but then they didn't have any other fruit. I mean, one good one would be Judas. How much more can you experience than Judas, right? He gets to experience all that the other disciples are. He's with Jesus, and yet he is wicked in his heart. Absolutely wicked. To keep it in context of Hebrews, this author has already brought up several times the Israel generation in the wilderness, that they saw God do things that we have not seen since, and he didn't do before. Like amazing things. They partook of the miracles. They, they experienced the word of God literally given to them on a mountain. Like literally, you can't experience this stuff much more than they did, and they were wicked in their hearts. You see, here's the scariest part about this to me. Is that when we're trying to see who, who, who are the goats and who are the sheep, like who is truly a believer and who's not, in America, we have dumbed down the gospel so much. And what I mean is, we don't ask the church to do half of the stuff that Jesus says his church should do. We, we talk about discipleship, and, and at best for many of us, we say, man, pray a prayer at kids' camp, try to read the Bible and do good, come to church and give money, and then see what happens. If we're honest, that's what most of us think it is. And Jesus is saying things like, whoever wants to follow me must pick up their cross every day, deny themselves, must leave mother and father and brother. Like scary stuff. And yet, so in America, we don't know, like they would have known 2,000 years ago, where if you profess faith in Jesus, it is obvious that you're following him, or it is obvious that you are not, because it costs you a lot. In America, we sit next to people every day. We don't know who is saved and who isn't, because we have taken the power out of the gospel by not proclaiming 99% of it. 
That's the scariest part. The scariest part is not, can true believers lose their salvation, which as we go through this, I hope you see they can't. The scariest part is that there's a bunch of people who look like true believers that aren't, and that deceit is spreading like wildfire. There's three groups of people probably in here tonight who are hearing this. One are people who look like they are Christians, but they really aren't. And, and for you, this probably should strike fear for you. The other group are, are true believers, but they're insecure. For you, you should walk away in security, knowing that this is not just a flippant loss of salvation for those who don't do good today. This isn't losing your car keys. Like, oh, where did it go? I lost my salvation. For those who are insecure, like this, this might very well not apply to you. And then there's the third, which are those who just hate God. And they would be the ones this is really applying to. And guess what? They don't care about God or heaven or hell. You ask yourself the old question when you look at your own life tonight. You've heard it before, but I'll say it again. If you were in the court of law, would there be enough evidence to convict you that you are a follower of Jesus? Let me ask it this way. If you look at the last two weeks of your life, the, the last week, the last month, whatever, and we stripped away everything of this world, we stripped away everything, and we took crime scene blacklight to your life, a spiritual blacklight, And all that shows is your faith and your obedience and your communion with Jesus and the fruit of a true follower of Jesus. What would that show? What would that show? This gets even a little heavier in the next couple verses. Verse 6 says, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain has, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And it and its end is to be burned. The next thing we see is the result of apostasy. Apostasy is to deny the faith. So remember, way back in verse 4, it said, it is impossible, it is impossible then for those people if they fall away, to be restored again to repentance. Now, you need to know, we're going to walk through this here in a little more depth. There's going to be a little bit of mystery that I can't explain about what this means, that you, you can't be brought to repentance. There's a little bit of mystery there. And it's a little bit scary. You see, we've got we to gotta know what does fall away means. Because even if he's talking about true believers, which there's plenty of evidence that he's not talking about true believers in verses 4 and 5, even if he is, we still got to answer the question, what does falling away really mean? Does it mean you just didn't do good today? Does it mean you don't go to church anymore? What does falling away really mean? Falling away means that you reject your profession of faith. In the early church, this is what would happen to martyrs, is they would want them to reject 
their own profession of faith. They would give them three shots normally, at least if the Romans were doing it. They'd say, I'll give you three opportunities to say, you do not, you renounce your faith, you do not believe that this Jesus is who he says he is. Three opportunities. And so it says, if those people fall away, if they renounce that they ever follow Jesus to begin with, then, then for them it's impossible to restore them to repentance, uh, since they are, again, crucifying the Son of God to their own harm. And when it says holding him up to contempt, basically it's saying this, that if you've fallen away, if you hate God, it's impossible to bring those people back to repentance because you had Jesus, like you can't crucify him again. Literally, like he, he died once and for all. There, there's like, you've got no hope. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. And it says to hold him up to contempt, it means to embarrass him, to publicly shame him. That if you say, I want to follow him, but then you turn back to the ways of this world, you're publicly shaming him. Here, let me, let me read to you this. This is, a, this is kind of weird. A lot of what I say is kind of weird. You, you want to know a little bit of what we're talking about here? You wouldn't think of this, but in Hebrews, later in chapter 12, it says uh, there's someone who wasn't able to be brought back to repentance. You guys remember who that is? No, you don't. Because no, you don't until, until you get here because it's kind of random. You don't think about this even in the Old Testament. Uh, in, in chapter 12, verse 15, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Here, here it is in verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing... He was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What? That's weird. So remember Esau, a dude who who had a birthright in his family, who had lineage, had promises coming through him. It's a big deal to be Esau. He gets hungry one day. Jacob, being a little punk, is like, I'm going I'm to get something out of him. So he's got some soup. Esau's hungry. And Esau doesn't care about the promises of God to the extent that he sells it all away. He gives it all away for some cereal or soup. And then later on, he comes back and he sees that, that Jacob then inherited double portion, his portion, his inheritance, the promises that he was supposed to get. And he hates it. And he's sorrowful. And he's crying about it. And it says he has no chance to repent. And so what it's saying is that there are some people, there are some people who they have defied God, that they hate God, they hate God so much that they don't care enough to even, to, 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 to not sell them out for some cereal. And when they come back even with tears, there's no chance to repent. Now here's the mystery. I don't know exactly what this looks like. Like, I, I don't know, I can't, so you, you might ask yourself, well, well, I mean, is this me? Are you saying that there's, there's a time that, like, God gives up on us? No, here, this isn't saying that God can't save you or won't save you. It's just saying God is sovereign, and more importantly, God will not be manipulated. You remember Jesus talked about, Jesus talked about one unforgivable sin. You guys remember what that was? 
Was it murder? Was it adultery? Abortion? No, it was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It was God knocking on the heart of our lives, knocking, knocking on the door of our lives and us saying, no, we don't want the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that God is who he says he is. We hate God. So anybody in this world who says, I don't want to follow God, I, I hate God, they have the one unforgivable sin. And so for those people, yeah, there is not much hope. Like if, there, if, if that's you or if there's people in your life where God has been saying over and over and over, hey, I want you, you are my child, I want you, and you just say, nope, no thanks, then yeah. Now, now, again, there's mystery, and it's kind of scary. I wish theology was so easy and streamlined that I could just feed it to you. We'd be like, that makes perfect sense. This doesn't make sense. I have no idea who that is. But there's some people out here who take this so, <laughs> we don't take this serious, and we say things like, you know what, I'm young, and, and uh, I'm just going to sow my wild oats now, and then later when I come back, you know, and settle down, I'll have Jesus. That might sound great in a country music song, but that's like taking a six-round revolver and filling one hole with a bullet and say, you know what, I'm going to shoot off five now and save one for later. Well, here's the thing. You don't know if there's a later because you don't know when that round is going to go off. And we say, is that really that big of a deal if we think, well, I'll come to God later. God hates it. And he's saying, I will not be manipulated. If you have the chance to repent tonight, he says, do it. He's not sitting back like we do in America and say, it's just not that big of a deal if I go off to college for a little bit and sow my wild oats and then come back to them. And when I'm 30, I'll have kids and I'll think, what did my family do? Well, they went to church and they didn't really live it out, but they put my kids in, you know, they put us in youth group and whatnot. And then I, no, he's saying, I hate it. And there, for some of you, will be an expiration date on the opportunity to repent. And that can make you think God's not good, or you can see the flip side of it, that he gave us a million other opportunities and say, we need to get it together and take the grace afforded to us. That is scary. And then verses 7 and 8. So now now we're switching a little bit, because right up until this point, you could say, okay, so I think Pastor Ryan is telling us that, that we can't lose our salvation. And I don't want to just give you my opinion. Because up until this point, we could kind of force that opinion based on other scripture, which we'll look at. You could force that opinion onto this Hebrews passage, but now you can't. Because now it changes a little bit. Because remember what I said about the sower, the parable of the sower, the seed thrown out? Now here... For those who think that he was talking in verse 4 or 5 about posers and not true Christians, here's some proof for it. Because it says, Then for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed. And its end is to be burned. Here's what it's saying. It's saying that when the word of God comes on, when the gospel comes on us, it's coming on two types of soil, either good or bad. Now, in the parable of the sower, we see four different options, but really it was good soil and three bad, okay? And so what the author is saying is there is bad soil and there is good soil. There's not, listen, there's not good soil that goes bad. Does that make sense? 
So there's not believers who receive it and it's great and they're saved and then the soil gets bad. No, there's just good soil and there's bad soil. So the fact that he splits up into two is saying that those folks in four and five, those folks back in verses four and five, that they might have just been bad soil. And remember what it looked like back in the parable that it even grew a little bit in the rocky places before the sun came out. It even grew a little bit. But it was still bad. You see, here's the deal. We've unfairly, up, we've unfairly titled this passage over and over and over again, Can You Lose Your Salvation? And so what it said, for many of us, like I said earlier, what it's done is made us insecure. That like, oh... I'm new to all this, and I don't know everything. Like, can somehow I lose my salvation? And we got to understand, this is a warning for people who just hate God. The people this really applies to don't care that this applies to them. <laughs> Does that make sense? So many people in churches talk about, can you lose, can you not lose? Listen, if you're even asking that question, you're probably already okay. <laughs> like if, you, if you care about salvation, you're probably, not a guarantee, but those who this actually applies to don't even care about God. You see, there's many people that you know and I know that grow up in the church, and, and, and then they, they say at some point, you know what, um, we, we all know these stories. I'm not going to go to church anymore because I just don't believe this stuff. Well, we all got that person. Let me ask you this. As you talk to those people, maybe you are that person. Can they tell you the beauty of the intricacies of a communion, a beautiful communion with Jesus? I haven't heard that. I've heard bitter, bad church experiences. Other Christians are hypocrites. My parents drugged me there, but I, I didn't really want it. I looked like a good alternative for a while, but no, I, I've heard a million things. I've never heard someone tell me it was amazing being with Jesus, and I reject it. And this is what really ticks me off, because the assumption is here that somehow people have tasted God in a way that is salva- like it's talking about salvation, and then turn their back on him. They don't know the power of my Jesus. Because my Jesus is the kind of Jesus that when you taste of it and it's real, you don't turn your back. Don't even tell me man has that much power. You can't tell me that we could ever taste the goodness of God in a way that is real and lasting, and turn our back on it. I I just know they ain't even talking about the Jesus of the Bible. They have no clue. No clue how good it is. Because those folks, they don't turn from it. They don't turn from it. I have favorite stories. You all have favorite stories. I have favorite stories. I just want to read to you some folks that don't turn from it because they, they taste the Jesus that we're talking about. Let me tell you about this one. Fox's Book of Martyrs. You could get lost in this. Ignatius, A.D. 110. 
solid dude. He was an overseer of the church in Antioch, the capital of Syria, where the disciples first were called Christians. He was sent to Rome because he professed and taught Christ. It's said that when he passed through Asia, even when guarded by soldiers, he preached the word of God in every city they traveled through and encouraged and strengthened the churches. While in Smyrna, he wrote to the church of Rome and appealed to them that they, that they not to try to deliver him from martyrdom, dying for his faith. Because they would deprive him of, what, of, of that which he most longed and hoped for. He wrote, now I begin to be a disciple. I care nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of my whole body and the malice of the devil come upon me. And be it so only that I have Jesus. And when he was sentenced to be fed to lions, he could hear their roaring. He was filled with the Spirit and such a desire to suffer for Jesus that he said, I am the wheat of Christ. I am ground. I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. They don't know this Jesus if they're saying you can walk away from this one. Polycarp, student of the Apostle John, same church that Ignatius was from. He heard that soldiers were looking for him and tried to escape, but was discovered by a child. After feeding the guards who captured him, he asked for an hour in prayer, which they gave him. He prayed with such fervency that his guards said they were sorry that they were the ones who captured him. Nevertheless, he was taken before the governor and condemned to be burned in the marketplace. After his sentence was given, the governor said to him, Reproach Christ, and I will release you. And Polycarp answered, listen to this, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? In the marketplace, he was tied to the stake rather than nailed, as was the usual custom, because he assured them he would stand immovable in the flames. Like, I'm, st- I'm not moving so much so, you don't even have to nail me. Just set me up in the fire. As the dry sticks were placed around him and were lit, the flames rose up and circled his body without touching him. The executioner was then ordered to pierce him with a sword. When he did, a great quantity of blood gushed out and put out the fire. They know something we don't know. They know something they don't know. You don't walk away from this Jesus. Last but not least here. We're going to take, take a little turn of hope here. The author says in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
Last thing we see is that Jesus is assurance. So the author's saying, listen, even though we speak in this way, this serious tone, this scary stuff, even though we speak of it, in your case, <laughs> the NLT says, it doesn't apply to you. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Here, here's, here's another proof that we're talking about posers in verses 4 and 5 and not true believers. It says, things that belong to salvation. Oh, okay, this is important context. Things that belong to salvation. The Greek means possessed or held by salvation. So now it's saying, listen. Those things, they were, they were all right. But here's the stuff we hope for you, things that actually come with being saved. And then verse 10 says, listen, God is not unaware of your faith. He's not unaware of your obedience. He's not unaware of you serving him and loving him. Of course, you can do those things and still not be saved, but the author's saying God knows your heart. He knows everything about you. And then here, it gets hopeful here. It says in verses 11 and 12, that we hope that you, you have full assurance that like Jesus is assurance, that you, that you have full assurance of this hope until the end. Over and over and over and over and over again through the scriptures, we see persevere, persevere to the end. That everything we just talked about, so like you can leave here tonight and you'd be like, man, I just kind of tore up inside. Like for the legit believers in the room, those who really follow Jesus, listen, he's saying this should encourage you. This should spur you on. This should make you say, man, my Jesus, he, he's worth following. That you inherit the promises. I had a gal in Utah one time. She came to a, two worship services. At the end of the second one, she came up to me. I could tell the whole time she was sitting in the front row, she wanted to talk. It's scary when you see that person, they just got kind of the, the little beady eyes, they're just staring at you the whole time, and you know they're going to come talk. Like, they don't even care what you're saying. They're, they got something to say to you, and you just, you, they come here, you go there afterward, like, you don't want to talk. So she came up to me, and she said, yeah, uh, do you have a new members class? And I said, well, we do, I and mean, it's kind of a hard issue, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, we, we do, yeah. She, I want to be a member of this church. Um, and then she gave me her credentials. Well, I came from a Baptist church in Texas, Southern Baptist Church, and I believe the Bible, and blah, 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 blah. And she said, but before I come a member of this church, I got one question for you, Pastor. And I said, shoot, no, don't. You're from Texas. That might be real. And I, I said, well, yeah, what is it? And she said, she pointed to her two boys, young teenagers. They were back, like, fighting against the wall. She said, I want you to be able to tell them with assurance that they are saved and that they cannot lose their salvation. And I looked at her and said, whatever I say doesn't really matter. It's kind of between them and Jesus. They looked over at me. I could tell they could care less. But this mama wanted security in some preacher's words. I could tell you the word of God. But Jesus is security. And when you know that 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 you're found in him, you don't need to go around and ask preachers to assure you of something that only God 
can assure you of. I'm going to preach the truth regardless of what she wanted. But some of us here tonight, we want to know, can I have assurance? And so I'm going to rifle through a few last questions. We'll make this quick. I'm just going to put scripture up here because this is a perfect example of a passage that you have to understand the context of the book, who, what, when, where, why, but you also have to understand the rest of scripture. And and if you didn't know coming into this, when it comes to the topic of losing your salvation the the evidence in other passages is overwhelmingly in favor of being eternally secure in christ outside of hebrews 6 the main thing that you will see people say well i believe you can lose your salvation not only from this passage but they would say all of the persevere passages why they do i'm not sure but that's what they do so let's ask some questions and rifle let's just let scripture tell you what this this old boy doesn't matter my opinion. So ask yourself, how is salvation given and can it be returned? Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me ask you this. Does God give salvation or do we give it? God. Is it a gift? Yes or no? Okay, so we need to know about gifts. Romans eleven twelve. 1129 says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable you want to know what irrevocable means irrevocable it means it can't be returned when it comes to salvation and God listen I'll never understand for those of you who love the Calvinist Arminius debate I'll never understand the the responsibility of mankind and the sovereignty of God and salvation and how it all works together but I know this it's something only God can give it's his work that has done it and when he gives it to you it's a one-way street you didn't give it to yourself you can't give it back and you didn't earn it yourself so you when you fail and you screw up and you fall on your face can't lose it by your lack of good deeds. Next question, when does eternal life start? John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, this is Jesus, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So eternal life is important because when you have it, you go from dead spiritually to alive. How long do you think eternal is? Forever. So here's the big question. Because Some of us could leave here tonight and we could say, you know, I know that when I die, I'm either going to heaven or hell. But how do I know until death that like I'm secure? John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ on earth, you pass from a dead man spiritually to alive in Christ. It doesn't stop and take a break when you're physically dead at the end of this life, but you enter eternal life. Not just knowing about Jesus, but when you are in the kind of relationship that he wants his children to be in with him, you are eternally alive. We're going we're gonna to sum this up here. 
So some of you say, well, then is there any way to know I'm saved? 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that the guarantee that we know we're saved is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Again, the Holy Spirit can convict you, and you can see him working, you can hear about him working, but the indwelling Holy Spirit in you that started a good work and continues that work, when he's working, which is Philippians 1.6, you know you're a child. Doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you don't screw up, but you know you're a child. And then Hebrews ten thirty six says, for you have need of endurance. Hey, here's the bottom line. You keep following Jesus the rest of your life, guess who the elect are? <laughs> You'd be one of them. And then we'll end with this one. When it comes to this whole topic, is Jesus a liar and is the father weak? In John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, Jesus says, My sheep, that's you and I, hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Is Jesus a liar? Is the Father weak? And Romans 8, 38, 39, reiterate that. Here's the bottom line. As you leave here tonight, if you find yourself as part of that crew that looks like you're partaking in the things of God, but you're not really a child of God, this should be a wake-up call. And the wake-up call is that if you can repent now, you should repent. If you're a believer that just doesn't know much about the Bible, but you, you, you earnestly seek to, to, to be in a relationship with Jesus, you, you talk to him, you obey, and you know you have mistakes, but like if you legitimately say, I, I trust in him, and I'm going to follow him, I'm going to persevere in that, trusting his work on the cross, then you should leave here affirmed and moved into further faith and action and obedience. And for those who commit apostasy that say, I hate him, don't want him, going that way, well, you probably wouldn't care enough to be here tonight if that was you. Jesus is security. You can trust him not only to save you, but to hold him in his, to hold you in his hand. Let's pray.